Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 6 of Cosmic Controversy. Today's guest is neuroscientist Lori Marino, an expert in animal behavior and intelligence, formerly on the faculty of Emory University in Atlanta. Well known for her work on the evolution of intelligence in whales and dolphins, for years she has collaborated with the SETI Institute on questions surrounding potential evolution of intelligence well beyond our solar system. Most recently, she is the founder and president of the Whale Sanctuary Project, as well as executive director of the Camella Center for Animal Advocacy. Lori, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thanks for having me, Bruce. It's been a long time. Uh, <laughs> probably the first time we met was uh, in Capri, I think, in 96. At- it was in Capri. Who can, who can forget that amazing conference? Amazing, amazing. And- <laughs> yes. Well, listen, uh, let's get right to it. What, um, okay. what puzzles you most about the origin of intelligence? I don't know if I'd say puzzled. I think what I know is, is that it seems that everyone on this planet who is an animal or has multiple cells uh, seems to have it, seems to have intelligence. And uh, that, to me, is a very, very interesting thing. And, and you write, uh, by one definition, uh, intelligence has been defined to be about creativity in solving novel problems. What, what do you mean by that? I mean that creativity uh, or the ability to solve problems uh, comes from the, having the mental resources to think through different scenarios to to actually represent things in your mind mentally, I think that's a a good definition of intelligence. It certainly uh, means that whoever has those abilities is is certainly conscious and and online. You have to be in order to work through uh, problems navigating through through life. Right. And then you say that... uh you write also that we can refer to intelligence as a level of cognitive complexity and how an individual or how an individual acquires processes, stores, analyzes and acts upon information and circumstances. Can you, can you break that down a bit? Sure. So that I use that definition of intelligence quite a bit uh, because of the fact that, you know, it, it, intelligence does have something to do with how you process information, information that comes from the outside, information about your own thoughts. Uh, and that to me is sort of a bare bones. It, 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 is, it harks back to the fact that I think that the very first organisms uh, who had intelligence uh, were input-output systems and the intelligence comes in being able to do something with the input so that you can uh, control the output in a way that that works for you and and that what is in the, that middle is is what the brain does and what do you mean by control the output uh, in other words what was so in other words what, what would you classify as as input and output? We can go down to the level of a single cell, uh, a bacterium. A bacterium actually has a lot of very interesting behaviors. Uh, some bacteria like light, um, and so they have sensors that, that uh, tell them when they're near light, and, and light is their input. So what do they do? Well, they enact a behavior that gets them closer to the light. That's the the output. Um, That's a very, very simple example. But when you think about it, you know, even the most complex organisms still have to take in information from the environment and they have to act on that information. And then the level of intelligence seems to be 
the complexity of of what you do with that with that information. But by that definition, cyanobacteria uh, as a group could be deemed uh, intelligent, no? Because they're they're taking in yeah. light. Absolutely. It. I think I think that, you know, we really have to break down the notion of intelligence. We've got to get out of this notion that, you know, humans are the only intelligent species on the planet and really look at where uh, processing of information comes from. And, and where it comes from is, uh, you know, a process that occurs in, in all mobile single celled organisms uh, ionic exchange across the membrane, if you will, um, and that 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 process, that way of doing it, hasn't changed ever. And what do you mean by ionic exchange? That's kind of a technical. In term. other words, when single cells uh, are in an environment, um, they have a characteristic called membrane permeability or membrane excitability, and what that means is that they can respond to the environment by changes in which ions they allow in and out across the membrane. And that basic process uh, changes the, uh, the positivity or negativity of the cell inside versus outside. Well, that very same process is how neurons work. And that's how our neurons are used processing information as you and I speak. So you can draw a line from single-celled organisms and membrane permeability uh, throughout uh, the evolution of nervous systems. And membrane permeability, again, is how, how would you define that? A membrane permeability or excitability is the ability to change uh, what comes into the cell and what goes out of the cell uh, depending upon uh, in response to a stimulus. And it happens uh, by a simple process of uh, opening and closing gates that are in cell membranes. I mean, we don't think of cell membranes as being particularly complex, but they're very complex. They have different openings in them. They have different mechanisms in them, and they can close and open different size openings um, to let in certain uh, uh, electrically charged uh, elements and let out certain electrically charged elements. And that electrochemical process is the way neurons work. It's, it's called an action potential, and it is the basis of all information processing. And I guess all that, uh, that's another podcast, but uh, the way our own brain works has greatly influenced uh, computer science over the, over the decades. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting is, you know, I think it goes both ways, right? Because we we think about our brain in terms of the latest technology, you know, whether it's computer science or um, telephone lines or, or anything that we think is the cutting edge. Um, and it, it's probably the case that our brain, you know, is none doesn't work in any of those ways. Um but it's something that we need to, to understand, you know, how and how organs process information. I don't think computers and, and actual brains are really anything like each other. Well, let's uh, step back and, and kind of uh, go back to the issues at hand, which, is on, which probably is on everybody's mind. You know, we live on this planet and we consider ourselves masters of the planet, uh, the smartest, yeah. smartest <laughs> beings on the planet. We're self-aware. We, we have, uh, you know, we can do quantum physics, but we also can be philosophical and look up at the sky and, and wonder what's out there. Um, so how did we get from, how did this earth get from microfossils to homo sapiens? And uh, before I, before you answer, I just want to, to, to read the listeners a passage that you wrote, which I thought was quite well done, and you just write, it's clear that there's never been a linear progression from the first life on this planet to us, and that the evolution of life on this planet resembles 
an ever-branching tree, more like a fractal than a ladder. While we may currently be the smartest species on the planet, this may not have always been the case. Sure. Well, you know, first I have to say that, you know, I'm not sure I would say we're the smartest species on the planet <laughs> anymore. But um, actually, what I'm referring to there is the fact that, you know, people tend to think that, you know, life arose on this planet and then there was some kind of uh, progression or some kind of almost purposeful evolution to evolve more and more intelligence or bigger and bigger brains until we finally got to, lo and behold, the sapiens. Um, and we consider ourselves to be at the top of some kind of a ladder. It's called the Scala Natura. It's an old version of nature that says that, you know, we're on the top and then all the other animals are sitting below us. Um, and of course, you know, that's very flattering to our species. And we you know, we do that because uh, we we need to justify some of the things that we do to other animals. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that nature evolution uh, hasn't pro pro progressed in any way. Um, there, there's those kinds of that kind of thinking is is a fallacy. Um, and in fact, you know, there are microbes and other organisms on this planet who are just as evolved as us. So when you actually look at the data, when you actually look at biological evolution on this planet, there is nothing, nothing to suggest that there was some drive or trend um, to go from simple to complex and, and especially not to go from single-celled organisms to homo sapiens. Okay. That's our, uh, oh. that's our, that's our uh, human fairy tale, our mythology that we tell ourselves. So what do you exactly, what do you mean exactly by the fact that we, we may not, we may currently be the smartest species on the planet. We may not have always been. And if that's well, the case, who, which species was the smartest? Well, what I was referring to there was the fact that we currently have the largest brain uh, in comparison to our body size of, of any living animal. And if you use that as a metric, and I'm not suggesting that that should be or should be the only metric of intelligence, um, but if you just go with that for a moment, then um, we like the fact that our brains are about seven times bigger than you would expect for an animal of our average body size. Uh, but but that wasn't always the case. Uh, before Homo sapiens came on the scene, there were uh, mammals swimming around in the ocean with relative brain sizes much larger than our ancestors uh, as recently as a million years ago. And that's the cetaceans, the dolphins and whales. Uh, they tend to have very, very large brains for their bodies. Some you know, three, four, five times the size you would expect for animals of their uh, body size. And before we became so brainy, before our human species became so brainy or so encephalized, um, we weren't so much. And the top uh, encephalized species on the planet were the cetaceans. So it puts things in perspective because only for a very, very short amount of time can we claim that we have the biggest uh, brains relative to our body size. Um, for most of that time, that just was not the case. Paleontologist uh, Peter Ward told me in one of my Forbes posts that uh, giant octopuses or octopi might have uh, been a good bet for intelligence, but their blood uses a high degree of copper. And um, so we use iron-based hemoglobin and thus Ward says that octopi are not able to get the oxygen needed for energy as efficiently to their brains as we are. Uh, would you agree with that? Absolutely not. Um, and <laughs> well. it, it, it just, it doesn't work. Here's the thing. Yes, brains are metabolically expensive. Uh, they, they just are. So he's right about that. But the fact is, is that 
there's no organism on the planet who doesn't have a brain that they don't uh, that that has more brain than they need. And when you look at the central nervous system of octopus, um, you find uh, that they have a very well-developed centralized brain as well as um, brain areas that go into their arms. Um, so for an animal who doesn't get a whole lot of uh, oxygen, um, their brains are very, very uh, elaborated. Um, and uh, it also suggests that, you know, I mean, when you look at the behavior of these animals and their cognitive abilities, uh, they don't seem very limited at all. Um, so I think that, you know, we have to be careful about those kinds of generalizations. So why then, why did, if what you say is true, uh, why did octopus, uh, octopuses not uh, in, um, have the kind of encephalization that is seen in, in um, dolphins or whales or humans? Well, I think that's a question about, you know, evolution. It's an evolutionary question. Dolphins and whales are mammals. Humans are mammals. Um, and uh, we came upon the scene of life on this planet much later than the ancestors of octopus. Uh, octopus are not, they're invertebrates. And so where they started from is a very different place than where mammals started from and so uh, but but so what you need to do is you need to not compare uh invertebrates to mammals ex in that way you need to say okay who's the ancestor of the octopus and how much more encephalized is the octopus uh from its ancestor as we are from our ancestors. So, you know, this is all relative. It's all relative. And again, you know, the octopus or any animal is not going to have any more brain than they can afford metabolically, you know, going back to what you asked before. Uh, so to ask why doesn't this species or that species have more brain or have a bigger brain, etc., they have just the amount of brain that they need. Um, and, and that's, and that's a full stop. So what about the energy question? Because we know I've did a, I did a story for Forbes on, on uh, oxygen and its prevalence in the universe. It is yeah. very prevalent that people probably don't realize that, but it is. And, uh, it, it's a very good, uh, energy carrier. Uh, yeah. and so, uh, but as you know, this planet started out anaer anaerobically, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, only late, well, 2.4 or something like billion years after the planet uh, was underway, we had a, a great oxidation event, which uh, was kind of uh, a random anomalous thing. Uh, so Peter Ward, go, uh, going back to, he, he told me uh, for one of my articles, he says uh, that to, we have to have enough energy for, for intelligence. Intelligence is going to require oxygen and he says he writes that uh, no cell in biology requires more oxygen than a nerve cell, which has to fire a chemical charge across the long, right. thin brain cell. For life on land, it's got to be high oxygen, and getting high oxygen is very difficult to do. So how do, how would you uh, respond to that in the context of you know the likelihood of having encephalized uh, species? We're going to get to that later on, but. Um, encephalized species on other planets well again you know uh we do it, it is the case that there's a correlation between uh the amount of oxygen in in the atmosphere and when larger brains started to develop and take off uh in in evolutionary time and so oxygen is a driver of uh metabolism and energy uh, in on this planet now, whether or not on another planet a different molecule could do the same thing, I don't know. Um, I think that you know oxygen. Obviously, I mean oxygen was once toxic, um, and uh, it's only 
after there was a, a big uh, shift in adaptation that organisms on the surface started to use oxygen to their benefit. So, you know, who knows? Something like that could happen on another planet with a different uh, molecule. Uh, but if, of course, if, if it you, is the case if, that, sorry, you know, if, if you're going to build nervous systems, you need a lot of energy. But if you had to replace oxygen with a with an alternate molecule, do you have anything off the top of your head? Not really. No, I, I don't know. Okay. So, um, but of course, we live on a planet that is 70% uh, 70% uh, covered by oceans. So, do you think that on an ocean-dominated world, uh, there might be intelligent creatures. I know that you think very highly of the um, of uh, the cetaceans, the, the whales and dolphins here on this planet. Uh, but um, do you think that uh, intelligent species, most intelligent species, evolved to walk on land? No, I don't think so. I think it just depends. I mean, when you look in the oceans today, we have a intelligence everywhere, not just in marine mammals, but in, as we talked about, octopus and cephalopods and in fish. Uh, they're all highly uh, intelligent organisms. Um, and I, I think that, you know, this idea of, you know, the water is, is something that might sometimes get in the way of really seeing what what's going on. So for instance, I've looked at cetacean evolution, dolphin and whale brain evolution. And a lot of people have asked me, well, are they so smart? Are they so brainy because they're living in the ocean? And the answer is uh, not really, um, kind of yes and no, and, and all that that implies. And what I mean by that is when you look at the fossil record, they were, you know, ancestral dolphins and whales were swimming around the ocean for 10, 15 million years, and there was no change in brain size. Um, they were just fine being big-bodied, small-brained animals. And there was a change that occurred about 30 to 35 million years ago in the fossil record that we know of that uh, provided uh, a selection pressure that ancestral dolphins and whales responded to with a lot of changes, changes in body size, changes in their dentition, and starting to get big brains. So it, could it be something about the water and aquatic existence? Yeah, sure, but you know, it's not just add water, get big brains, uh, or add land, get big brains. It really depends upon the specific selection pressures. And some of those selection pressures are not immediately obvious. Right, and but you use the term dentition. Uh, could you give us a teeth? That, teeth. teeth. So okay. if, you were, if you were swimming around the ocean 50 million years ago and you came across um, an archaeocete, which is an ancient dolphin, um, you would want to get out of the water really quickly. <laughs> they were big and they had lots of big teeth, carnivorous teeth. Okay. And so they were very formidable. And, and so they, they, that changed, right? So nowadays we've got, you know, all of their dentition became kind of similar, peg-like. They exchange big teeth for big brains. And that's very interesting and has... And that tale, that story, that evolutionary story goes well beyond the fact that they're just aquatic. Right. Okay. So, but what about uh, such creatures developing technology in the same underwater technology? Um, again, Peter Ward says he thinks it's unlikely that te a technological uh, species is going to uh, remain underwater if they're going to actually build spaceships and travel to other stars. So in other words, uh, it's just going to be too difficult for them to build the kind of technology needed to get, get beyond their planet. If they remain, you know, aquatic, uh, in the same, that might be in the, the same, case. I mean, you can't make fire in the ocean, right? Right. That may, or he'd have to, he said you would have to have an acetylene torch or something, <laughs> which, is, yeah. which is difficult. Well, sure. I think, you know, 
if you if you think that I mean if you're looking at a species that is has enough technology uh, to to go off planet, probably I you know I don't because you never say never, right? Because again, a lot of intelligence has evolved in the ocean, and not only that, a lot of tool using and tools have evolved in the ocean. I mean, dolphins and whales make tools. Um, they use air-water interfaces in, in ways that are really quite clever. Uh, and, you know, lots of, and octopus use tools. They use shells and so forth. So, you know, we find a lot of tool users in the ocean. Whether or not you can get from there to, you know, a rocket ship is another matter. But I would contend that it really depends upon what your question is. So if your question is, you know, how many, you know, species are out there that are flying around in rocket ships, that's one question. But if you ask the question, how many intelligent species are out there, that's yet another question. And that question can, uh, it doesn't preclude individual, I mean, animal species who, who live in an aquatic environment that could be uh, vastly more intelligent than we are. Right. I gotcha. So, um, but what's hindering our communication with the cetaceans, the whales and dolphins? I mean, there's been a lot but, of work um, on that. What's hindering it is, is human bias and uh, the, the limitations in human ability and human uh, cognition. I, I truly believe that. Um, we have yet I mean, the, the, when, you real, when you look at the kinds of non-human communication systems that we have been able to unpack or understand, if you will, they're, they're, they're very, you know, they're simple um, and they tend to have um, a one-to-one -one correlation between something that happens and a behavior. So, for instance, we recognize that uh, vervet monkeys have uh, alarm calls uh, or prairie dogs have alarm calls because we see a hawk appear in the sky and then the animals make a certain sound. So that sound must mean hawk. And those kinds of correlations um, are relatively easy. I don't mean the research is easy because it's not, but relatively easy to comprehend. But if you are faced with another species that might have uh, more subtle or other dimensions to their communication system, um, then it's going to be very difficult for us to recognize it. So in the case of dolphins and whales, I mean, we still don't really understand how they, how they mentally represent their communication system. If we don't have a clue about that, we just don't know where to look. Now, what do you mean? What, what do you mean by how they mentally represent? Their in other words, we have, you know, uh, human language has certain things in it, certain properties, and we know that a word, for instance, is a unit. Um, we we uh, we have already agreed upon ways of parsing the sounds we make that make it possible for us to have a communication, uh, a dialogue, a discussion. Um, but what if you were faced with a being who, whose um, mental representation of the structure of their native communication system is unknown to you? Do they have words? Do they have, do they have a, a, a discrete units? Or do they have some kind of gradual dimension to... to to their sound that creates meaning? And do they combine uh, sounds in ways that we don't understand? Um, I think that, I think that you know, that makes it uh, extremely difficult. I do think there's one area um, that has been very fruitful, one area of science uh, research that has been quite fruitful in this arena, and that's uh, using information theory and uh, if you use information theory, you you can collect a lot of sounds that other animals make. Uh, they're what you would call their repertoire, and then you can uh, look at whether or not certain sounds come before or after other sounds. And you can look for structure. 
And what that means is that their sounds are not just random, that just like our conversation is not random, certain words come before or after other words, um, there's structure in our communication. And that work has shown that there is structure in dolphin and whale communication. Um, so we may not know everything about what they're saying, but we know they're saying something pretty complex. So you're saying that the, they do have some sort of syntax yes. uh, and uh, in human yeah. speech, uh, we have sounds or word or, or individual sounds that represent words and then words that represent sentences and then sentences that combine to, into paragraphs and, and then passages of thought. Exactly. Right? And you do that using computer algorithms. I mean, you're, you're, this, this goes, you know, it's a purely quantitative, uh, objective way of looking at um, a repertoire of sounds from a given species and involves no assumptions about who that species is, how intelligent they are, just looks literally at the probabilities of one sound coming before, after another to find structure. But if we can't uh, understand two of the most intelligent species on the planet, uh, the cetaceans, the whales, and the dolphins. Um, what hope do we have of communicating with intelligent space aliens if they are out there? I don't know. It depends on who they are. I mean, <laughs> you would think that... So, I mean, one of the things is that <clears throat> dolphins and whales are generally not trying to communicate with us. Um, they do communicate with us in ways, but... Their, their motivation is not to develop a way to communicate with humans. They would rather just lead their lives. <laughs> and uh, communicating with the other members of their pod and so forth is what's important to them, not across the species gap in that way. We would hope that uh, if there was um, an alien intelligence that was trying to reach out, that they would devise some way to give us a primer or dumb down their, their language um, in a way that allows us to at least get a handle on, on how they do communication. Right. Uh, the people in the SETI community, some of them at least, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence community, uh, seem to think that, uh, that aliens would probably use some sort of coded mathematics to communicate. Uh, what do you think? Maybe. Um, again, I think that if there are enough of them out there, somebody's using everything that you you can think of. But yeah, I mean, mathematics, uh, if it's universal, uh, I think it's a good way to do uh, that kind of thing, uh, coded mathematics. So, yeah, I think that, that's a possibility. And what, uh, what type of intelligence do you think is most likely to evolve independently in the universe? Independently in the universe? Well, I mean, I, well, what I mean is uh, to evolve. I mean, off, you know, well beyond our solar system. So well, again, I, I think that, you know, the things that we are learning about extrasolar planets and, you know, some of the things that we're surmising about their, their possible chemistry and their, and where they sit in relation to their sun and the probability of, of liquid water. Uh, it, all of that tells me that at least a good portion of uh, life outside of Earth is going to have a very similar basis or foundation to that of Earth. I, I do think that I can't imagine, or, or rather should I say, um, I, I do think that if intelligence arises, that there has to be some way that an organism can respond to the environment. And, you know, again, when you look, look around you and you see that all organisms who are mobile, who move around, have to have that permeable membrane, have to have that excitable membrane, which served as a template for all nervous systems on this planet that came afterwards. So it might not be exactly an exchange of the same ions that we use on this planet, but something of that nature that gives you the ability to change your state 
with input from the environment. And so that's uh, that's what you think intelligence would need to evolve elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Any anything else? What would it need besides that? Well, then then you be you, then you begin to think about. Uh, I think multicellularity. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to be super super intelligent if you're a bacterium, <laughs> a single cell, because there's there's just so much a single cell can do. Um, once you get to the point where you have um, cells uh, co-opted to a multicellular animal, um, and some of those cells co-opted to become specialized to uh, process information, then you start getting neurons. And once you're there, um, that really, you know, is the grist for the mill, if you will. Um, and then it becomes a matter of what selection pressures present themselves to multicellular animals uh, in their environment. I mean, if you look on Earth, I mean, it, you know, you really, I mean, multicellular animals with centralized brains they've been around i mean there's 600 um they 600 million years um so it's not like uh intelligence emerged with humans or even mammals um as soon as we got multicellularity we got we got brains and and once you're there then it just is a matter of of what selection pressures the planet throws at you well, in science fiction, uh, intelligent aliens are often depicted as with with grot- grotesquely oversized heads. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the grays. So, <laughs> well, that that and also in kind of uh, schlocky Hollywood films like Mars Attacks, which was kind of a parody, <laughs> a parody of <laughs> of uh, a lot of the B grade fifty science fiction films. But uh, so. Will their brains have to be so large in comparison to their bodies? Or uh, you you kind of touched on this earlier, but I just thought I would bring this up. Yeah, think about it. So, you know, you take those little aliens in Mars attacks. They have these little teeny tiny skinny bodies, which are basically hominid. And then sitting on top of that spindly little body is this gigantic head with this giant brain. <laughs> now... We know on this planet that, you know, the human brain is about as big as you can get um, for our body size. In fact, our brains are actually getting smaller. And there's some, ev- there's some evidence to suggest that instead of our brains getting bigger and bigger and bigger, our brains are actually getting smaller. And the selection pressure on that has to do with, you know, fitting through the birth canal. Um, women have a lot of trouble now fitting babies' heads through their birth canal. Babies' heads are not going to get much bigger without there being a complete reworking of our reproductive physiology, <laughs> maybe giving birth to babies that are, are more premature or something. But, you know, something has to give. The idea that a little so that's one issue. And the other issue is this little skeleton. How is, how is this puny little body going to hold up this giant head? Um, and just in physical terms. So mechanically, it's just not feasible. And I think what's really interesting about those little aliens is that they are projections of what we think an alien should be. Because we think an alien is going to have more brains than us and that you know in the future we if we continue will be these big brained aliens it's a projection of psychology and uh but it just doesn't work physically when you think about it <laughs> but why uh go back to what you were saying why are the hu- why are human brains getting smaller that's uh, that's strange i don't i haven't heard that i don't i don't know the reason um I just know that there's some empirical evidence out there to suggest that. Um, and that's not anything that should shock us or surprise us. Um, brains, as I mentioned, brains are only as big as they need to be. Um, and there have, there are, you know, much bigger brains. Um, 
it, you know, and when you look at the evolution, you don't just see small brains becoming big. You see big brains becoming small and everything in between. So that's what I meant when I said that there's no progression in evolution. It's not like life emerged on this planet just to become brainy astronauts. It just doesn't work that way. And we have lots of evidence that it goes in the other direction. So if you had to make a guess as to what uh, Homo sapiens will look like uh, if we survive a million years from now, uh, <laughs> because we're, right now we're only about two hundred. That's a tall order. <laughs> we're, we're about well, uh, you know, let's uh, don't let's yeah. kind of dismiss the societal and cultural issues that could bring us down, but let's just say, you know, for biology's sake, and um, but um, what do you think? You know, how would we how would we change? And uh, because we're only something like 250,000 years old as a species. Am I wrong? Yeah. I mean, how we would change. I I can't tell you how we would change. because (laughs) It would depend upon what selection pressures are out there. Um, We would not become brainier just for the sake of becoming brainier. Um, The way we would change would be in accordance with what is needed to push as much DNA into the next generation as possible. So that's the bottom line is you, we're only, you know, from a biological evolution point of view, those who get a lot of their DNA into the next generation pass on their traits, um, whatever those traits are. So it will depend upon what, what's important for survival and reproduction uh, in the future. And that could be anything. And so what do you think about uh, the idea of, uh, you know, humans becoming Martians and voyaging to the outer solar system, living on these uh, platforms that have artificial gravity? How is that going to affect our, how is that going to affect our encephalization? Well, that's really interesting because that's a case of uh, selection pressure. If you start growing up you know, babies on a low gravity planet, for instance, generation after generation after generation, there will probably be changes in the physiology and the musculature, the skeletal. And in fact, at some point, it'll become a speciation event. And those, those many generations down the road, they may not be able to come back to Earth where there's more gravity. Um, but that's just plain old speciation. How it will impact our encephalization, I have no idea. Uh, because, again, it will depend upon whether there is somehow survival and reproduction value having whatever a large brain affords. Um, and, and it really is that. So it's not the case that, you know, we're going to start a colony on Mars and then many generations down the road you know, we're all going to, you know, the human species is going to become this brainy, uh, these brainy Martians. There's no reason (laughs) to think that unless there's something about living on Mars that requires that. I mean, I'm trying to avoid, you know, value-laden ideas about more intelligent and less intelligent so we could just see that species are just an expression of the environment. And, uh, you know, what that environment puts before that species is how that species is going to adapt. So you wrote that uh, in one of your papers, you wrote that honeybee and ant colonies possess a collective memory. Collective or swarm intelligence does not necessarily emerge at the expense of individual intelligence. Mm -hmm. So... um, how intelligent are bee colonies and how might this kind of hive intelligence play out beyond the solar system? Well, you know, everybody likes to think about hive intelligence, swarm intelligence in astrobiology. It's such an interesting concept. I think something has been lost in, in discussions of swarm intelligence or hive intelligence, and that is the individual. Um, because hives are made up of individuals. And while it is the case that when working together, bees, termites, others uh, can achieve things that they can't achieve on their own, it is certainly not the case that 
that hive intelligence came at the expense of individual intelligence. Um, and I think that's a really, really important point is that, you know, hive intelligence and individual intelligence are on two different planes. It doesn't, doesn't mean that one trades off another. Um, when we look at the intelligence, the cognitive abilities of bees, for instance, and it's just astounding. They're quite uh, cognitively complex. There's a million neurons in that brain, and and they're doing a lot of stuff with it. <laughs> so um, bees on their own are really quite intelligent. When you put them all together, then you get more intelligence. But having a hive intelligence says very little, I think, about the intelligence of the individuals who make up the hive. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, would intelligent beings elsewhere necessarily have a level of compassion and self-awareness and even respect for other living creatures, uh, or will they be ruthless, locust-like beings of the sort <laughs> that swept through in the film Independence Day? Right. So, well, locusts are only living their lives. They're not ruthless. <laughs> They're just locusts. That's what they do. And, um, you know, I, I, but, you know, all kidding aside, I mean, would they... I, I, I compassion, empathy, all of that. Um, I mean, it really would depend upon who they were, how they evolved, whether they were social. Um, and, you know, I can tell you this much that it, it's likely, but maybe not. I mean, it's likely that if you have the kind of technology that humans have, that if you don't have any semblance of empathy or morality, if you will, et cetera, that you're, you're likely to um, probably not make it um, into being an, an interplanetary species. I mean, we are barely hanging by a thread now as a species. We can't even live on this planet. Think about us going from planet to planet to planet without um, upping our, our empathy quotient is, is pretty horrifying, actually. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I really, I think that, you know, there is something to be said for being able to get along with others and live on this planet sustainably, for instance, um, uh, when you are considering going elsewhere but to on, do that. But on the other hand, uh, uh, Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute, who you know very well, uh, yes. Once said uh, that uh, oh, I've heard him say that he thinks that you know they're, they're going to be all kinds and they're they're probably going to be you know uh, shark like uh, intelligent beings out there that are that are just rip you up uh, that that would just as soon rip you up than look at you. Sure, I mean, but again, you know, I think that we have to get away from these stereotypes of sharks being nasty creatures or well they're just feel, they're just fulfilling I mean, their evolutionary they niche do right they do. They do. in fact they evolved to be a very humans <laughs> well, i can tell you that well the, the so sharks just evolved to be the fill an evolutionary niche but uh you know right that exactly. could happen anyway so, yes he's right in the sense that um you know any any anyone we find on another planet is just going to be an expression of their evolutionary niche. And that expression might involve uh, being very aggressive and doing all the things that we hope they don't do to us and those kinds of things. Um, and, but I just, I, I want to sort of get away from sort of stereotypes about, you know, what is, um, you know, when people think about sharks, they think about nasty, violent, sort of not very intelligent animals. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, but, yeah, the point is well taken. There could be a lot of nasties out there um, who, you know, have found a way to use their technology and get what they want, and they could come and do something to us. Um, again, I think you know, a lot of those fears are a projection of how we are already and how we um, act towards other species on this planet. So, but we are, we, but we are a dichotomy. Fair. I mean, you know, to be fair, I mean, uh, it's not a dichotomy, right? So it's like humans. I mean, we're not, 
we're not all nasty. We're not all wonderful. We're a combination, a very complex combination of, of things, of factors. And, and any, any organism is going to be that. Well, you, uh, let, let's step back. You uh, posed a question a, a few years ago on uh, at, uh, posing the question, why hasn't there been, why there's, there's been essentially no empirical work within astrobiology on the evolution of intelligence off-world. Uh, so in other <laughs> words, people are always studying, you know, could we have a microbial life around this red dwarf, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but you say that you wrote at least a few years back that there has been yeah. very little done in the field of astrobiology on the evolution of full, full-fledged intelligent life and even technological life. Uh, so how do you feel about that statement now? Yeah. No, no, I agree. I, I think that still holds. I mean, there have been, there are specific individuals, uh, people like Natalie Caprol at the SETI Institute, who's uh, made concerted efforts to in- incorporate neuroscience and psychology and comparative work uh, into the work of the SETI Institute. Natalie is very forward thinking in that way. But by and large, when you look at the work, you know, the science of astrobiology, it's true. You start with the origin of life, very simple single-celled organisms, and then you have this black hole <laughs> of empirical research. And then you're talking about radio telescope using uh, organisms on another planet. So what? how do you get from one to the other? And and there's been a, a complete dismissal of of all of the science of how you get from a single-celled organism to um, a telescope-using organism. And, uh, you know, the science is there. It's called neuroscience, comparative psychology. It's a whole world of empirical scientific study that can inform how you get from a single-celled organism to a radio telescope using organism. And I think there's, you know, part of it is just historical. Part of it, I dare say, is hubris. I think that a lot of people have dismissed um, the the um, scientific validity of work in the, in the area of animal minds, animal communication, uh, and, and those kinds of things. I mean, heck, even in the area of animal, communi- animal psychology, it was not until recently that we, that we decided we would accept the, the fact that other animals even have minds, and that's in our own field. So I think that it just is education. I think that, you know, people who work uh, on astronomy, people who work on single-celled organisms, just need to be educated that there's a whole world of empirical research out there that can actually make their lives a whole lot more interesting uh, than they are. And we would like to, to sort of fill in that, that empty space, and there's no reason for it to be there. So you're saying that, you would, that that area needs a lot more funding, in other words? A lot more funding. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's more than just funding. It's, it's acknowledgement. It's acknowledgement that there is something to fund. I think we have to start way back with that. Right. Okay. So uh, in, in one of my Forbes posts, I uh, interviewed you, and you told me uh, that if no other species has a need to evolve a technological intelligence, then it will not happen. Only if right. there is selective pressure to develop a, te- a complex technological intelligence will it happen again. So... What what are your thoughts? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, think about. I mean, when you look at, look at the the variety of species on this planet, how many are tool using? Um, are, you know, a few. Um, we're one of them. And there are others, um, but the vast majority are not tool using. And tool use is technology is shaping your environment um, to meet your needs. Um, and so, you know, technology might be something that's rare. Um, if you're talking about the kind of technology that, you know, builds space, builds radio telescopes, 
Um, the way I think about it is I play the numbers, right? So I think that there are so many, that the probability of there being life elsewhere is so high that at least some of them are going to build something. <laughs> right, I get and you. So, yeah. So uh, we're coming to the end of the episode, but I just have a couple of questions that uh, I'm sure the listeners would would, uh, would definitely want to know uh, your response. And, and one, there was a recent uh, paper that predicted that microfossils and microbial life are likely to be ubiquitous, but intelligence is going to be rarer by a three to two margin in the universe. So you touched on that just now, but if you had to guess, if you were, you know, going to Vegas and and putting down a bet, I hate Vegas. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. What's that? I, I mean, hate Vegas. <laughs> okay. Well. All right. So, <laughs> well, anyway. But that's another. That's another conversation. Uh, okay. So if you were, if you had to guess, how many intelligent extraterrestrial species might have evolved in our own galaxy? What would you say? I honestly, I, I know enough to say that I can't guess. Um, I, I, I honestly can't, you know. Um, ever since I've been involved with SETI, um, ever since I was a graduate student, going way back, people have been asking that question. And when I was younger, I was stupid enough to actually give an answer. Um, <laughs> what, now what, I know what, better. <laughs> I know that I don't know enough right. to give an answer that, would have any veracity at all of validity. Um, we'll just have to see. Okay. So, um, but it's also possible as you've alluded that we could simply have lots of extremely intelligent, but non-technological species dotted, Absolutely. A, dotted across the cosmic plane. I mean, that's a real possibility in your eyes. Oh, oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, look at this planet. Most intelligent species are not technological. And there's really only one species on this planet, our species, that has gotten to the point where the technology is might be um, allow them to go off planet or be detected by a civilization on another planet. So that's that's a pretty rare thing, um, that kind of technology. Okay, so we'll end it there. Um, thank you so much, Laura. Just uh, one uh, question is, what's the best way for listeners to, to reach you or, or comment? Uh, do you have a web page or email or anything that you want to share? Uh, yeah, they can go to my uh, question, my Q&A uh, email info at whalesanctuary.org okay great i also want to say to the listeners i welcome your comments on the podbean uh, host page for the podcast or via my twitter account via direct message at b dormany so thanks so much Lori. uh it's interesting that we first met uh on the isle of capri uh, yes. maybe in more innocent times, uh, <laughs> at the bioastronomy 1996 conference. I was there covering yes, it. And during that time, they uh, announced the first extrasolar planets and everyone at that conference was just lit up. That's right. Just, That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yep. we had Amazing. a lot of discussions about SETI in a way SETI seemed to be a lot, uh, kind of, a a lot more innocent at, you know, back then. I don't know. Uh, what, what do you think has changed in, in, in that time period? Well, I think SETI has come to realize that, you know, we're not living somewhere where there are radio telescope using civilizations all over the place. Um, we don't have to duck um, so that the you know, the, the rocket ships don't hit us kind of thing. Um, we're not, that's, that's not the case. I mean, we've been at it for uh, many decades and it's, it's, it's clear that it's not going to be easy. With that said, it doesn't mean that it's not going to be successful. And I think SETI Institute and SETI scientists realize now that they just have to go wider. They just have to continue 
because it could happen any day. It could happen tomorrow. Um, but they also have to consider other scenarios besides radio tele telescopes. And, and they are. They're doing that. And that's adapting to incoming information. The incoming information tells them that there may be light everywhere, but, you know, there aren't tons and tons of radio telescope communicating civilizations right next door. Anyway, we'll leave it there. Uh, I just hope that you will continue asking these big uh, scientific and philosophical questions. It's always a pleasure Thank to speak you. to you. I will. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You. Take care. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>